0: Good evening. Biden's first day, a whirlwind of activity aimed at controlling the COVID pandemic. The vaccine crisis has forced New York and other localities to suspend inoculations. And tomorrow, a world-spanning treaty banning nuclear weapons goes into effect. Only problem, no nuclear states are members. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, January 21st, 2021. With a burst of executive orders, President Joe Biden served notice Thursday that America's war on COVID-19 is under new command, promising an anxious nation progress to reduce infections and lift the siege it's endured for nearly a year. Biden's top promise, a 100 million vaccine shot in 100 days. I'm
1: unveiling a national strategy on COVID-19 and executive actions to beat this pandemic. This plan reflects uh, the ideas I set forward during the campaign and uh, further refined over the past three months. It consists of uh, my transitions teams, the task force, Tony Fauci and the team here today and other experts put this plan together. Our national strategy is comprehensive. It's based on science, not politics. It's based on truth, not denial. And it's detail. Our plan starts with mounting an aggressive, safe and effective vaccination campaign to meet our goal of administering 100 million shots in our first 100 days in
0: office. We're on day one. Biden declared to a nation waiting for action. Let me be clear on this point. Help is on the way. The new White House press secretary described what's ahead and it's leaving head spinning. Jen Psaki.
2: Underpinning everything the president signed today, and everything we do every day will be equity. Some highlights of those actions include an executive order to fill supply shortfalls for vaccinations, testing, and PPE. The president directed agencies to exercise all appropriate authorities, including the Defense Production Act, to accelerate manufacturing and delivering of supplies such as N95 masks, gowns, gloves, PCR swabs, test reagents, and necessary equipment and material for the vaccine. The president also signed a presidential memorandum to increase federal reimbursement to states and tribes for the cost of National Guard personnel, emergency supplies, and the personnel and equipment needed to create vaccination centers. An executive order that established a COVID-19 pandemic testing board to bring the full force of the federal government's expertise to expanding testing supply and increasing access to testing, an executive order to bolster access to COVID-19 treatments and clinical care, establishing a comprehensive and coordinated preclinical drug discovery and development program to allow therapeutics to be evaluated and developed in response to pandemic threats. Uh, uh, Sorry, I had to clear my throat. There's a lot here.
0: And the old voice in a new fuse, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who was sidelined by Trump, steps into the lead. With a sigh of relief,
2: Doctor Faustus, what you've joked a couple
1: times t- today already about the difference in that you feel in being kind of the spokesperson for this issue in this administration versus the previous one. Can you can you talk a little bit about how free, how much different do you feel, less constrained? What is the you know I mean, you you for so many times you stood up behind the podium with Donald Trump standing behind you. That was a different. That was a different feeling. I sh- I'm, I'm sure than it is today. Can you talk a little bit about about how you feel, uh, kind of released from from what you had been doing for the last year? Yeah, but you said I was joking about it. I was very serious <laughs> <laughs> about it. I wasn't joking.
0: Um, no, actually, I uh, mean, I mean, obviously, I don't want to be going back, you know, over history. But it was very clear that there were things that were said. Uh, be it regarding things like hydroxychloroquine and other things like that, that really was uncomfortable because they were not based on scientific fact. I can tell you, I, I take no pleasure at all in being in a situation of contradicting the president. So it was really something that you didn't feel that you could actually say something and there wouldn't be any repercussions about it. The idea that you can get up here and talk about what you know, what the evidence, what the science is, and know that's it let the science speak it is somewhat of a liberating feel
1: basically vanished for a, for a few months uh, there for a while <laughs> you feel
0: like you're back now i think so <laughs> well wow. okay that's my Dr. Anthony Fauci. Influential Republicans promised support, and the United States Chamber of Commerce added in a statement, we support the new administration's focus on removing roadblocks to vaccinations and reopening schools. Although airlines, Amtrak, and other transport providers now require masks, Biden's order makes it a federal mandate, leaving little wiggle room for passengers tempted to argue about their rights. It marks a sharp break with the culture of President Donald Trump's administration, under which masks were optional and Trump himself rarely War 1. Close to home, some COVID-19 vaccination sites in New York City began canceling or postponing shots or stopping making new appointments on Thursday amid the growing vaccine shortages. Over the past few days, authorities in California, Ohio, West Virginia, Florida, and Hawaii also warned that their supplies were running out. Vaccinations in New York haven't stopped, but demand for the shots now far
1: exceed the number of doses available. Mayor Bill de Blasio. I'm really encouraged by what I see uh, from the president's plan for fighting COVID and particularly his devotion to moving the supply. And that's what we need is to get a much greater supply of the vaccine quickly. Thank God he is invoking the Defense Production Act. That's what we need the most muscular possible approach to maximize the amount of supply, get it to here, to New York City, everywhere around the country, because we are running out of vaccine and we need more now. So look, Again, the good news is, in the meantime, we're giving every dose we can. We have passed the half-million mark since the beginning of our vaccination effort. Over half a million New Yorkers gotten a vaccine. That's great. Gotten vaccinated. That's wonderful. Uh, Yesterday alone, a wonderful number. 45,000 New Yorkers were vaccinated yesterday. That number keeps growing all the time. Uh, We're going to be at 50,000 a day and more very soon. If we have the vaccine to go with it, we've had to. And I think it's just tremendously sad that as we have so many people want the vaccine and so much ability to give the vaccine, what's happening? For lack of supply, we're actually having to cancel appointments. Uh, we need more vaccine and we need it now. Mayor de Blasio. Over the past two weeks, states, at the
0: urging of the Trump administration, rapidly expanded their vaccination drives to people 65 and older, which has raised expectations of availability and created greater demand. The CDC reports the U.S. government has delivered nearly 38 million doses of vaccine to the states, and about 17.5 million of those have been administered. About 2.4 million people have received the necessary two doses, well short of the hundreds of millions who will have to be inoculated to vanquish the outbreak. And in the continuing blizzard of activity from the White House, President Biden has proposed to Russia a five-year extension of a nuclear arms treaty set to expire in February. Russia says it would welcome an extension of the New START treaty, limiting the number of U.S. and Russian strategic nuclear weapons. The New START treaty is the last treaty enforced between the two nuclear powers, once bitter enemies, but still powerful rivals. Two other treaties were allowed to expire by the Trump administration. The treaty, signed in 2010 by President Barack Obama and Russian President Dmitry Medvedev, limits each country to no more than 1,550 deployed nuclear warheads. But another nuclear treaty is coming into effect on Friday that is unique in one major way. None of the world's known nuclear weapons powers have signed on to it. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons has been ratified by over 100 non-nuclear nations. The signatories promise to never, under any circumstances, develop, test, produce, manufacture, acquire, possess, or stockpile nuclear weapons the treaty bans the threat of using nuclear weapons or allowing any nuclear nation to station nuclear weapons on a signatory's territory and the treaty has provisions for helping the victims of nuclear weapons testing and manufacturing the president of the campaign for peace disarmament and common security is dr joseph gerson
3: so the treaty grows out of anger rage actually uh, by many of the non-nuclear weapons states and and their people uh, that the United States and the other nuclear powers have failed to uh, fulfill their now 50-year-old uh, commit, commitment under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty to engage in good-faith negotiations for the elimination of their nuclear arsenals. Uh, and so uh, in 2017, uh, at the United Nations, uh, 122 nations, uh, along with civil society, and negotiated the terms of the Treaty for Prohibition of, of, of Nuclear Weapons. Uh, it goes into force, as you said, uh, tomorrow. In essence, what it does is it um, requires that the uh, countries that, that accept to ratify the, uh, the, the treaty uh, will forswear ever developing or um, possessing uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, and it calls on the, uh, it also calls on on the world's nations uh, to uh, aid nuclear weapons victims, not only those from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but from nuclear weapons testing, uranium mining, uh, and, and so on. Uh, and it, it essentially calls for uh, the treaty to become universalized for all all nations to support it. Uh, the nuclear weapons states, in part led by the United States that refused to uh sign the treaty uh and actively uh, worked to uh keep other nations from signing it but with the 50 ratifications that were received it goes it goes into into force one of the key elements in the treaty uh, article 12 uh requires uh th- those uh, parties to the treaty the countries that, that belong to it uh, to work to encourage to influence the nuclear weapon states to join uh, and this can take any any number of uh, manifestations uh, from lobbying uh, governments uh, articles uh, work within academia uh, even to the possibility of forbidding investment uh, in say companies that manufacture or financial institutions involved in the production of nuclear weapons or even in the future the possibility that they might band together and exercise sanctions against the nuclear uh, weapon states. So it's it's an interesting new beginning.
0: To illustrate the dangers of the nuclear stockpile, Dr. Gerson talked about the final terrifying days of Donald Trump's presidency when a deranged leader had the power of world destruction in his hands.
3: But it's worth remembering uh, that in the immediate aftermath of of Trump's failed coup, uh, concerns were so serious that in his desperation as he faced possible imprisonment certainly having to leave the, the White House and uh, possible financial ruin, the possibility that he might just decide to pull the plug on his life uh, and take, take, take the rest of us with him. Um, the president of the United States has the power to initiate nuclear war on his own authority uh, without controls really by anybody else. So the urgency of dealing with this issue is, is very real.
0: Although the United States has no intention uh, to sign on to the treaty prohibiting nuclear arms, Gerson says President Biden is approachable on some of the issues other nations have raised.
3: With the Biden administration, and I think with pressure from the outside, uh, we can take some, some steps to reduce though not eliminate the, the dangers of nuclear war. And here we have the high priority of the extension of the uh, New START treaty with Russia, which has to be done before February 5th. We have the urgent need to rejoin the the, um, nuclear weapons agreement with Iran, and that has to be done quickly because if it's not, uh, conservatives will likely take power in elections in Iran in in April, uh, making revitalization of that agreement uh, much more difficult.
0: And in a country facing hundreds of billions in deficits, cutting back on nukes is a great way to save money.
3: There's going to be a very intense debate uh, in Congress uh, come this spring uh, over where the money should be spent, what the national budget will be. And and we have the Biden administration, have or Biden himself, having said before uh, that he has serious questions about replacing the United States land-based missiles. We should really be looking at both peace, but also social justice and climate organizations working to really press on the change of our national budget priorities. Gerson adds, now is the time. The United States first-strike policy is there. Our forces are on hair-trigger alert, and so are the Russians. It's not unimaginable that we could end up with, you know, with a nuclear catastrophe in a totally unexpected moment. So really working for abolition of nuclear weapons is an urgent priority.
0: Dr. Joseph Gerson is president of the Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security and the victims of nuclear weapons are not just the people of japan who are unfortunate enough to be living at ground zero in august of 1945 but the downwinders people who live near mines mills and factories where nuclear weapons are fabricated among the hardest hit the navajo or dina people of new mexico and arizona the coordinator of the nuclear issue studies group is leona morgan a member of the dina people she lives in new mexico
4: uranium mining is a big problem here, and nationally, there there are over 15,000 abandoned uranium mines, which all need to be cleaned up. Right now, there's some work on cleanup on the Navajo Nation, but it's not very comprehensive, and, and it's not funded by the entity that created the problem, which is the federal government. If we're lucky, there's settlements from some of the companies that still exist, but the cleanup is very poor, and. Some of the proposals are atrocious, such as a cleanup plan happening now, which is going through a public comment period near Church Rock, New Mexico, where the company is proposing to scrape up mine waste and pile it on top of the mill waste, which caused the 1979 uranium spill. This happened on July 16, 1979, where the uranium waste from the mill, which was being stored in an area very close to the Porco River, and because of a break in the dam that was holding in the liquid waste, all of that contaminated radioactive water went into a ditch that then connected to this river and then flowed 100 miles into Arizona. Downstream, we have folks that were drinking uranium-contaminated water coming out of their tap. And so this is an example of victims that are often overlooked from the entire weapons complex. Uranium mining is just one aspect of the entire mess. If we want to look at actual weapons testing, of course there's the people near the Nevada test site, the Marshall Islands, and different places where their lands and their water and food sources were all highly contaminated. Some of those victims were offered compensation. It can also continue on generation to generation. Specifically in New Mexico, where the first nuclear weapon was tested at the Trinity site on July 16th, 1945, that's the same day as the Church Rock spill, July 16, is a horrible day in our history here. The downwinders of the Trinity test, they were not compensated under the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, known as RECA.
0: So if the United States signed on, the United Nations prohibition on nuclear weapons It wouldn't be just a matter of wanting to or not. It would be required to fund these things.
4: I don't imagine the United States will willingly sign with pressure from community folks and from other leaders in Congress. I think it's long overdue that the United States consider and finally agree to stop making nuclear weapons because it's not only necessary to change our international, imperialistic force on the world, but to look internally at all of these problems. If the United States continues to make weapons and use weapons, it's just going to continue these problems that we haven't addressed that are decades old. We do hope our organization in Albuquerque, Nuclear Issue Study Group, we're holding an action on Friday to commemorate this day of the UN Treaty entry into force, and we will do our best to support any work to get the United States to ratify the treaty. I hope it will happen in my lifetime. I do see that the United States depends a lot on the economics of the military-industrial complex, but this is really not the way to go about creating jobs by killing people, with the use of the weapons, of course.
0: And Leona Morgan is a member of the Dena, or Navajo people. She lives in New Mexico. On Wednesday, January 27th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, I think that's two hours behind us uh, here on the East Coast, there will be a YouTube program called Remembering Downwinders. It'll feature Tina Cardova of the Trinity site in in Nevada. Uh, Pardon me, the Trinity site where the original nuclear bomb was exploded. The test uh, in July of uh, 1945 where people are still suffering from the uh, uh, radiation that was released into the environment in that area. Leona Morgan herself from the Dina people of New Mexico. Tricia Pritikin of the Hanford nuclear site where plutonium was manufactured for decades. Mary Dixon of the Nevada test site where many, many nuclear bombs were exploded in the 1950s and 60s. The event is being sponsored by the Utah Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And in New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio announced the city's new NYPD disciplinary matrix to provide accountability for police officers involved in misconduct. Many community activists have long complained that the cops are rarely ever held accountable for substantiated complaints through the
1: Civilian Complaint Review Board, or CCRB. Mayor de Blasio. Just the effort to try and get a true Civilian Complaint Review Board uh, was fought back, in some cases very viciously, and it took until 1992 just to get a CCRB to really be established the right way with some actual power. I was literally working in this building at the time for Mayor Dinkins. It was a hugely important day when that legislation finally passed. And then for decades thereafter, unfortunately, mayors after Mayor Dinkins did not invest and focus on the CCRB. Something's been created that revolutionizes police discipline. I've talked about it over the last few days. It's the discipline matrix. Uh, this is a game changer, and any New Yorker who wants to see the details, go online, nycgovernor slash Discipline Matrix. Literally identifies every offense and what the penalties would be. Uh, crucially, after what we saw happen at the U.S. Capitol, this document speaks powerfully uh, to how we would address those who uh, express hate speech, express racist and white supremacist views, Uh, The bottom line is there's no place for people like that in the NYPD and the standards are very clear here. Now, today we're announcing, and this is gonna be made public uh, very shortly, memorandum of understanding between uh, the CCRB and the NYPD. And why this is so important is this memorandum of understanding makes abundantly clear that the NYPD and the CCRB are in agreement that the NYPD will follow these specific guidelines consistently that the penalty range will be followed consistently case after case after case this is an agreement that this is the way forward that's the only way to create clarity and consistency and build trust mayor de blasio the chair of the ccrb
0: is reverend fred davies he laid out the new rules for cops and the memorandum of understanding or miu with the nypd and how the rules will be enforced
1: there are presumptive penalties that for infractions that we consider crucial, one of those is a presumptive penalty of termination for chokeholds. And we all know uh, issues that have arisen around chokeholds by officers in New York City. Well, with a presumptive penalty of termination, we believe that moves us a, a long way in ensuring the public that the use of chokeholds will become a rare occurrence. And policing in New York City.
0: Reverend Fred Davies is chair of the CCRB and ProPublica reporter Topher Sanders has an article today titled Still Can't Breathe about the failures of the NYPD to end the illegal move known as the chokehold he says of more than 800 complaints of chokehold since Eric Garner died in what his supporters called a chokehold and cops said was not the use of force to prevent breathing or blood flow that's what a chokehold is they still continue to be used in only 40 have been found or held accountable.
5: George Floyd was not a chokehold in the classic sense. It was a maneuver that restricted breathing, I think is what people who would have problems with what they saw happen to George Floyd. That would not be a chokehold. Eric Gardner is more in line with what people think about when they see and think about a chokehold. Although the defense for that officer argued that it wasn't a chokehold. You'd
0: mentioned one officer in the course of your article He had three chokehold complaints, 46 allegations, five lawsuits, and it paid out $200,000, yet he was a detective? That's right.
5: We did find a number of more highly ranked individuals in the broader universe of CCRB allegations that is slightly unusual for chokehold allegations, but it isn't necessarily completely unusual for myriad of complaints that can come in about an officer. The mayor
0: at his news conference was talking about his new disciplinary matrix. Do you think that this has a chance of making officers accountable for these kind of actions?
5: Some of the discipline measures outlined in the matrix are quite harsh. If the matrix is actually the guiding rule by some of the discipline that's arrived at, it could have an effect where Officers make different decisions when they're out in the street. For instance, now under the matrix, anyone found to have used a chokehold would be terminated and at the minimum would be forced to separate. The distinction there is just that if you're forced to separate, you could be allowed to maintain your pension. That's an actual discipline measure that may have officers thinking a great deal about the types of maneuvers they use when they're out in the streets. The problem is that ultimately... The decision still lies with the commissioner, and there has been a history where commissioners are willing to downgrade punishments that come out of the administrative trial. So I think that what the citizens of New York will have to do is kind of wait and see, are the guidelines of the matrix going to rule the day, or will the commissioner downgrade punishments even if the trial room decides that a chokehold was used?
0: What do you feel at your gut level
5: I've been doing this long enough to not have a gut level. (laughs) I will be eager to see what data uh, can be shared with the public at around a six-month time frame and to use the data to determine whether or not the matrix has had an impact.
0: So we have to wait six months for that data to come out, you think?
5: That's even if they're going to share it at the six-month period. But six months would be a good window to get a sense of what has been the impact of this matrix. Has discipline around some of these allegations changed? If you were to look at it after it's been around for half a year to a year, you may get a good sense of what's happening.
0: Transparency problems with the NYPD.
5: It can be difficult to get data and information, yes.
0: How did you get this information?
5: CCRB. When they repealed 50A, there was about a month-long period where anyone could make a public records request of the CCRB for its data and for the results of its investigations. ProPublica did that and so did NYCLU. Both organizations acquired large tranches of the data and we were able to use that data to give us a roadmap to doing this evaluation.
0: That data is out of hand right now. It's being decided by a court. They were able to get a, to clamp down on that.
5: That's correct. The data that ProPublica and NYCLU were able to obtain, uh, both organizations published the data that they obtained But even when you look at that data, there's still questions that you have and you want to see more of it. If you have those questions and you want to see more of it right now, you can't because it's all locked down in the middle of injunctions and court battles and hearings. And so we have to wait to see what happens with the lawsuit that was filed by the the unions and see if that data is something that the public will continue to be able to look at, evaluate and analyze.
0: ProPublica reporter Topher Sanders, he has an article out today titled Still Can't Breathe about the failures of the NYPD and the illegal move known as the chokehold. You can get it at propublica.org. 50A was a law repealed by voters last year freeing up one secret information from the CCRB and NYPD disciplinary files that's being challenged in court by police unions. <laughs> And that's some of the news for Thursday, January 21st, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. For the WBAI News, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.